Well, good morning. Man, it's great to see everybody here this morning. Uh, it's exciting times here at the Solid Rock, and God is doing so much in our church. And uh, specifically, I just want to highlight our student ministry right now. I've uh, been back from camp now, I guess, three weeks. And, uh, and so last week we had uh, two students who are following the Lord in baptism. This week, a couple more. In a couple weeks, we've got another three or four more um, as God continues to work in our student ministry. Um, and, and even beyond uh, the baptismal, like I heard an example from Friday from one of our moms here who needed some help moving. And, uh, and so I'm always the last to volunteer for helping move, but I hear our students showed up in a really big way to go help a family in need, to pack up and help move. And the word that was spoken to me this morning, that there was zero complaining. So that's the truth. If you get me to show up, I'm at least going to complain. You guys, um, thank you for loving those of you who went and served, uh, for being a tangible expression of God's love. And so um, adults, let's follow their lead um, as we live out the gospel here and the people amongst the people around us. And so um, one announcement I want to make, thank you, first of all, if you're a visitor, for being patient with us on the seating. We realize that we're, um, we're out of seats in, uh, in this service and still a few left in the first service. Um, those of you who are regulars here, and it doesn't matter, we invite you to come to the first service. It's always helpful to free up seats. But, um, but bigger than that, I want to make an announcement to you, let you know our, um, our building uh, research and development team has been working for the last 18 months on researching the growth that's coming in our area along with the needs of our campus. And, uh, and, ha- and so they've been working diligently behind the scenes. Um, I want to invite you to pray for them over the next two weeks. Uh, the, hopefully, the team is going to be making a final selection on an architect who will help us look at our entire campus. If you don't know, we have about 15 acres here that's, uh, that's paid for, free and clear. We're debt-free. Such a great opportunity uh, to be a beacon and lighthouse in this community, to make more room for the folks you're reaching out to. Um, imagine this times two. Imagine this times ten when we, um, when we steward God's resources well. And so that's what we're hoping to do. If you would pray for this team as they help us select somebody to help us figure out what to do and how to maximize what God's given us. Um, the specific prayer is this, for unity um, among the team, that we as a church would follow in, in unity. Um, but more importantly, that the nuts and bolts of building a building wouldn't distract us from the true mission that we're on. And if you would just join us as a church family in praying for those things, especially over the next couple of weeks, really, really, really appreciate that. Um, so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6. If you've got a Bible and want to turn there, go for it. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, we invite you to do that. We put black um, hardback Bibles um, under the chairs around you, under your seat. Feel free to grab one of those. It's there for you. Um, more than what I have to say this morning, I'm really hopeful that you would hear what God would have to say as we open his word together and read uh, Hebrews 6. And uh, so just a little background information. Um, on June the 14th, uh, that's the Sunday we left off on the Hebrews series. We're picking it back up today. And so Brian Lamb preached the first half of Hebrews 6 on that Sunday. And if you haven't listened to it, you weren't here, missed it, I really encourage you to go online to our website, go to that sermon and listen for it. It's entitled uh, Rooted in Christ. And, uh, and, and not only did Brian do an amazing job, but a very powerful word uh, from the first part of Hebrews 6 about how when our lives are rooted in Christ, they grow and produce fruit and move on to maturity uh, as God invites us out of the shallow end of the pool into the deeper things of God. And so, um, and, and not only that, but um, a lot of what we're talking about today is going to bridge from that sermon uh, to help us finish out the chapter. So I encourage you to go back to Hebrews 6, 1 through 12, preached on June 14th. So we're going to get started in just a second. Today we're talking about um, anchors, anchors in life. Matter of fact, the sermon title is Anchored in Christ. Okay, so I want to start by talking about the things that we naturally gravitate to as 
anchors in life. And so here's how you know what an anchor is in your life. Think about the thing that if it were stripped out of your life tomorrow, you have no idea how you would carry on. Think about that. What are the things in your life that you hold on to as important, as dear to you, that if one of them were stripped away, you don't have any idea how you would carry on? For the vast majority of us, we're going to immediately begin to think about relationships, spouses, significant others, children, those people that we hold dear, those people that we seek um, comfort from. We even seek encouragement and security from. A lot of us will find that in a spouse. And if we could imagine having our spouse stripped away from us tomorrow, we have no idea how we would go on. For others of us, it's more in line with a career and a salary. And so for you, maybe you've built your identity based on what you do for a living. And so it's no longer what you do, it's who you are. And not only that, the salary that comes with it has has supported the rest of your identity and your hobbies and your house and your neighborhood and your car and the things in life that identify you as you. And so for you, if your career were gone tomorrow, if your job ended tomorrow, suddenly you have no idea how you would carry on. There's a couple examples then of things that become anchors in our life, things we hold on to to not only stabilize us but to get us through turbulent times. I want to just share some personal, um, a couple personal stories with you about how uh, my life has gone. And so from the age of birth till five years old, one of the most significant anchors in my life was my father. My dad had a job where he traveled a lot, and so I didn't know any different. He was gone a vast majority of the year, but when he came home, daddy was home. He brought gifts. He spent time with me. We we dreamed about the future, and he spoke vision into my life. And, and so from the age of zero to five, my dad was the strongest person in the world to me. He was my hero, the person who I loved the most. And um, I'll never forget the moment when my mom was in the kitchen on the phone. I was in the living room playing in the floor, and she, I was already beginning to hear her voice. Something was wrong. She hung up the phone, walked into the living room with tears coming down her face, and said to me, Jason, I need to talk with you. Your dad is not coming home. And at that moment, at five years old, I didn't fully grasp what that meant, but I was already beginning to feel an anchor ripped out of my life. She wanted to explain he had made some bad choices. He was going to prison. It would be a long, long time before I would ever see him again. And for years, drifted back and forth, trying to figure out who am I, who am I to be, holding on at times to those, those words spoken by my father as a young child about what my life was supposed to be like and, and drifting from here to there and, and never finding anything to set my anchor on. When I was 15 years old. Um, it was the fall of my sophomore year. My grandmother, my nana, was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And some of you are familiar with Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a, a very merciless um, affliction, and uh, the doctors told us we had three months to three years with my grandmother, and that was basically all they told us, and so we uh, began that process of figuring out what that was going to look like, and, and she only made it six months, and so my sophomore year of high school basically was walking out um, the last six months of my grandmother's life, and I'll never forget towards the end, um, not really having anything in my life that I could anchor to to get me through it, then what I did is I avoided it altogether. 
just give you an example of that, um, you know, towards the end where hospice was taking care of her and we knew we were in our final, final days. Some of you have been there, you know, as well. Um, I was working a job. I was 15 years old. I had a $5 an hour job, um, you know, working at a little parts store. And, and I'll never forget getting that phone call. And my mom called me and just said, you know, Jason, if you want, if you want to see your Nana alive, you need to come home now. And uh, I, I'll never forget telling her, I, I can't come because I have to work. And I hung up the phone. And my boss, who was a family friend, came to me and just said, Jason, what are you doing? Like, your family needs you. That's way more important than what you're doing for me here. Go. And I, I refused. So I had no anchor, no way to, to navigate that level of turbulent, turbulence or that, 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 that powerful storm that was in front of us of watching my grandmother pass away. And so I, I avoided it altogether. About three months after she passed away, I became a Christian. And I met Jesus. And that's the moment in my life where I finally found something I could anchor to that would be here tomorrow, that couldn't be stripped away from me. Now, at 15 years old, I was primarily um, banking on Jesus to get me uh, to eternity. That was my primary relationship with Jesus, was not about what he was doing in my life here right now, but about what eternity would look like. And so there was this inward struggle between trusting him for eternity and trusting him for today. And so like many of us today, at 15 years old, I began this relationship with Jesus, yet I was still anchoring my life to shallow things in shallow waters, latching on to fleeting things in my life, things that would be here today and gone tomorrow. This inward struggle between trusting Jesus with my attorney and trusting Jesus with what was going on right now. Like many of us, um, I set my moral compass based on what I thought was right. Looking back at a 15-year-old's mind and heart, what a foolish thing to do. I sought joy in things that I thought would make me happy rather than the things that he told me would make me happy. So I would latch on to, to shallow things in that way. Purpose and meaning for life. I would look for it in myself and try to figure out what I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And all along, the Holy Spirit of God was whispering in my ear, I've created you with purpose. Like, Turn to me. Find your purpose in me. I've designed you for and with a purpose. And so this struggle ensued. And over the last 24 years, uh, this month that I've been a Christian, one by one, slowly but surely, God has been calling me to pull up those anchors, to sever those ties, to shift from trusting in shallow waters and fleeting things to what will be here tomorrow. And so this is where we're going in Hebrews 6 today. We're going to start in a moment in, in verse 12, just a little background, though, from the sermon on the 14th of June. So what happens is the author of Hebrews in the first half of this chapter challenges Christians to really step back from their lives and take some spiritual inventory. Matter of fact, Brian said that early on when he was a Christian, he would read this passage. It would sometimes cause him to ask the question, am I even a Christian? And so the author is challenging Christians who at this point in their journey should be much more mature should be producing fruit to take a step back and, and ask the question, why am I not growing? Why is my life stagnant? Where am I placing my hope and my trust? And so in the first half of the chapter, right, you can, you can find a deep challenge to step back and ask the question, am I even a Christian? But then what's beautiful is there's this amazing transition. In verse 9 of Hebrews 6, the author says this, though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to your salvation. 
And so while on one hand the author is pressing these Christians to consider why they're not growing, why are their lives not moving on from elementary things into the deep things of God, these, these folks who have been Christians for years and by this time should be teachers, yet they still need somebody to teach them. In 9 through 12, we find this transition. The author says, but here's the thing. I want you to be assured. I want you to have security. I want you to know that you know. In order to do that, your life has to be anchored in the right thing. And so we'll pick this up in verse 13. Now, we're going to start with a reference to a guy from the Old Testament, Abraham. And I know that, I mean, you don't have to go to church a whole lot, and you're somewhat probably familiar with that name, but don't really know who he is or what he represents. For the folks who were reading this for the first time, the ones who received this letter the first time, I mean, Abraham was a big deal, a big deal. I was trying to think of an American celebrity that you could, you could compare to Abraham. And reality is I can't think of any person. I mean, even guys like George Washington, right, don't rival the way that these people thought about Abraham because he wasn't just a political figure. He was a religious figure. He served as a patriarch of everything, right, that was meaningful in life. And they knew his whole story. They had memorized all the verses of the Old Testament that described Abraham. So this quick reference to Abraham was, was significant to the people who were reading this first. Let me just give you a little, little background as we get ready to think about Abraham. So Abraham comes into the story way early in your Bible, Genesis 12. First book in your Bible, 12 chapters in, we're introduced to Abraham. And at the very beginning of being introduced to Abraham, God speaks a promise to Abraham. And that's what this is going to be referencing as we go along today. Okay, And we'll go back and look at that promise in just a minute. So let's start in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, we'll go there in just a minute, since he, this is God, had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, God speaks this promise to Abraham, just some context. Abraham, life for Abraham, for all that we can tell, was, was pretty good at this moment. He was living in his father's land. He was probably fairly familiar with how to make a living. It seems like he was probably fairly successful raising flocks and having livestock and agriculture. And, and so, so for, for Abraham at this point in time, the only struggle we know that he has is that his wife is barren and they can't have kids. Other than that, things seem to be going well. So in Genesis 12, we'll, we'll throw this up on the screen for you, verses 1 through 3. Here's what God says to Abraham. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Abraham, here's the, first the command, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, just a minute ago, we were talking about refugees being extracted out of everything that was familiar, everything that was comfortable, everything that they knew, and being airdropped in a foreign place, in a foreign culture, with a foreign language, and how, how difficult that must be, right? And so here we have God stepping in in Abraham's life and saying, Abraham, Come go with me to the land that I'm going to show you. Now think about that invitation. He's saying to Abraham, draw up your anchors. Abraham, I know you've got anchors dropped, right, in your father's home country. You've got anchors of comf comfort, anchors of familiarity, anchors of predictability. Your life is stabilized for the most part right now by what you know, Abraham. I'm asking you to pull up all your anchors and go where? to the land that I will show you. Now, what's beautiful about that? 
Where did God tell Abraham to put his anchors? Go to the land that I will show you. Abraham, as you draw up your anchors and things that are comfortable and familiar, I want you to place your anchors. I want you to lash yourself to me. Buckle your seatbelt. Follow me. Here we go. Now, as you read the story of Abraham through Genesis, I mean, just right after this, Abraham packs up his stuff and goes, and then right off the bat, he's doubting. So we get this beautiful uh, portrait of both faithfulness and struggle in Abraham. I mean, he just, and just when he gets to Egypt, what does he do? He tells his wife, let's conjure up a story. Let's lie about you not being my wife. Let's say that you're my sister, because if they think that you're my wife, they're going to kill me. What was he doing? He was placing his anchor on shallow things, on his ability to fool the Egyptians. But God was saying, what? Don't trust in that, Abraham. Trust in me. Put your anchors on me. And so in Abraham, we get this beautiful example of both faithfulness and struggle. So the author of Hebrews says, when God made his promise to Abraham, this is God, he had no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, it's a beautiful promise. Um, in Galatians 3, the apostle Paul in the New Testament will translate those verses for us and say, you know what God was doing with Abraham? And Abraham had no idea. He was actually preaching the gospel to Abraham. How is that true? Because he says what? If you keep reading in Genesis 1, or 12, verses 2, he says, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you a great name so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will <coughs> excuse me, curse. We stop right there. It seems like the primary blessing is what? Abraham, even though you don't have any kids, I'm going to give you kids and make you a great nation. But that's not where the promise ends. Look at what he says. And in you, all families or ethnicities or nationalities of the earth shall be blessed. See, there's a hint of the gospel in that, isn't it? We're told to take the gospel where? To all ethnicities, to the nations. So Paul will say, God was already preaching the gospel in Genesis 12 to Abraham. So right now, what the what author wants us to fixate on is the fact that God made a promise and he swore it as an oath. Verse 15, Hebrews 6. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, if we're not careful, we'll just read that in context of his life here on earth. He waited about 25 years before he had a son. That's pretty patient, right? God says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you children. I know your wife's barren. Just trust me. Come with me. Go to the land I'm going to show you, and you're going to have kids. I mean, most of us, right, three months in, we're thinking, when's this going to happen, right? I mean, three more months, and we're going to go to a fertility doctor, Right? And we began to take things back into our own hands. But he waited 25 years for God to just take that first step in fulfilling the promise. And so if we're not careful, we'll think that's what he meant. But if we follow the story of Abraham, what happens is Abraham never fully gets to realize the promised land. He travels through it, but doesn't get to set up shop there. It's not until the end of Exodus where the descendants of Abraham have become a nation and God rescues them out of slavery and leads them into the promised land. And if we're not careful, we'll get fixated on that and go, that's what you meant. You meant when the nation is finally ready, they'll enter into the promised land, cross the Jordan, enter into the promised land. But here's the problem with that. When you go back and you read the beautiful descriptions of the promised land, you read about a place that is full of peace and has no struggle. Yet when you're following the story in the Bible and, you, and the nation of Israel gets there, they have nothing but struggle, right? Struggling with God for their own autonomy. 
struggling with the nations around them. Their people are still getting bit by snakes. They're still being afflicted by cancer. They're still struggling with things like diabetes and heart attacks. And and so there's still a people that are struggling even once they landed in modern-day Israel, even, even after Jerusalem was set up. And if we're not careful, we'll read that and go, oh, that's what he meant. So Abraham waited patiently. But if we go to Hebrews chapter 11, we find that what the author is talking about is something actually bigger than that. Hebrews chapter 11, this is a few chapters to the right in the same book we're in, same author, same context. He's going to bring up Abraham again. This is Hebrews 11. And we'll start in verse 8. You read 8 through 10, and then we'll read a couple more verses after that. I love this. By faith, Abraham obeyed. So any mark of obedience in Abraham's life was actually a mark of what? Faith. When God said go, he went. Why? Because he was scared of God? No, because he believed. He believed that God made a promise and he was going to keep it. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Verse 9. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, or the promised land, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, talking about his children and his children's children in the generations. Look at what verse 10 says. For he was, this is Abraham, he was looking forward to the city. We stop there, we go, okay, he's looking forward to Jerusalem, right? Finally, when we get to the city, we set it up, we set up the temple. Finally, that's what we're looking for. But look at what verse 10 says. No, that's not the city he was looking for. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is who? God. So ultimately, what Abraham was looking forward to was not the geographical modern-day region of Israel with with Jerusalem set up as the capital city, the host of of, of of the temple of the Lord, that Abraham was actually fixated on something past that. Look at what verse 13 says. Speaking of all the patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith in the Old Testament, these all died in faith. They lived by faith and they died by and in faith, not having received the things promised. Now, wait a second. I thought Abraham waited patiently and received the things promised. He just said what? Not having received the things promised. Look at the very next part of this verse. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they, being Abraham, his descendants, were strangers and exiles on the earth. They weren't looking for God to fulfill his promises right here, right now. They had lashed their souls onto something further off in the distance. Verse 14, for people who speak this way or speak thus make it clear that they are not seeking a homeland here. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have, what? Had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. When the people of Israel finally got to the promised land, it wasn't good enough. Why? Because God was promising a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Guess where your Bible ends? 
You read your Bible all the way to the end. You start in Genesis 12. God makes this promise all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament to Revelation. Get to the end of Revelation. Guess what happens? The new Jerusalem finally appears. The heavenly version, whose designer and builder is who? God. That is ultimately what Abraham had lashed his heart to. God, take me wherever you want to lead me here on this earth. I'll struggle in faithfulness to follow you. But I'm not counting on you to fulfill that promise you made to me in the things here. How do we know that? Other than Hebrews said it, how do we know that? Go back to Genesis. Go back to chapter 22. So 10 chapters after the promise, what happens? Abraham has a son named Isaac. What does God say to him? Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son who you love, and I want you to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Whoa, what a crossroads. If Abraham was solely fixated on what was happening here on earth, all of a sudden God was about to undo everything he promised to do, right? But what did Abraham do? He packed up his son. He packed up the firewood, the, firewood, the flame, the dagger. And he said, son, let's go. And in humble obedience, he trekked himself all the way up to the mountain to the altar to sacrifice his son, even to the point that he had bound his son and got ready to sacrifice him. And God steps in at the last minute, right, and provides the ultimate sacrifice so that Abraham doesn't have to sacrifice his son. You know what Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was banking on? Abraham didn't know God was going to step in. You know what he was banking on? The fact that God could raise the dead. Right? I don't get this, God. It seems to be going contrary to what I thought you were promising to me, but I'm, I don't have my eyes fixated on what's happening right here. I'm looking beyond that to a better city, a better country, a better existence. I've lashed my heart to that, and I'm ready to let go of the things here that mean the most to me. And Hebrews 11 says that Abraham did it because he believed God had power to raise the dead. Now, that, that's the... That's the relationship between God's promised Abraham and his faithfulness to believe and obey. So now here's what's happening. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament is saying what to the church? In the same way God made this foundational, non-altering, non-swaying promise to Abraham. It was almost as if God said to Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. In the same way God made that promise, and Abraham banked his life on it. He anchored his life to it. He lashed his soul to it. In the same way, we've been given a promise. We've been given the opportunity to anchor ourselves on things that are deep, things that don't move, things that aren't here today and gone tomorrow. And so in the same way that Abraham waited patiently, we are called to wait patiently on the promises of God. Now, verse 16 and 17 is going to describe God making a promise and swearing by himself. Um, verse 16 says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So in the same way God has made the promise to Abraham, and he's going to fulfill it, he's invited us in on that same promise and made an oath with us. Matter of fact, God reiterates his promise right after him and Isaac come down from the mountain. So God steps in and provides a ram for the sacrifice. Abraham, whew, right? All right, unbinds his son, sacrifices the ram, packs his son up, and they head back down the mountain. Here's what happens. This is Genesis 22. Listen to this, verse 16. 
God reiterates this promise to Abraham. He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. 17, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Verse 18, and in your offspring shall, listen listen to this wording, all the nations on earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. And in that moment, God tells Abraham, here's the reason why we've made it this far. Because I didn't swear based on what you were capable of. I swore on myself. Now, let me translate to our culture. Um, This understanding of swearing by an oath is very similar to what we understand in contracts. The only difference is they didn't have an easy out system. So where we have bankruptcy or we can roll over negative equity into something and borrow more money and just keep it rolling, like that's a difference. They didn't have an easy out. Matter of fact, their oaths were so binding, it was eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, limb for limb. And so the way that the oath worked is the guarantee of the oath was only as good as the person guaranteeing it. Similar, similar to if you had a co-signer on a loan, right? So the, the bank will loan you not based on what they feel like you can deliver, but based on the person, right, who has more credit than you can deliver. And they'll only loan you as much money as they think that person can pay back. Okay, just now take that into this understanding. And God, what God is saying is, Abraham, here's, here's, here's who guaranteed my oath. Here's who co-signed for me. I did. I co-signed for myself. I'm the one guaranteeing this promise. And so it says that God did so, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise, God wants us to be secure. He wanted Abraham to be secure. He wants you to be secure. God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things. What are the unchangeable things about God's oath? First of all, it's an oath. You can't change it. It's written. It's in blood. What's the second part that's unchangeable? The fact that he guaranteed it with his own character. You see, for God to go back on his promise is to go back on his own character. There's nobody higher who he can swear by. Nobody with more credit, nobody with more character, integrity than God himself. And so that by those two unchangeable things, you and I find security. Look at the rest of 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, that theme comes up again, doesn't it? In a similar fashion, we talked earlier about folks fleeing from persecution and trying to find refuge here in the city and safety. The same thing is true of us in Christ. We have fled. I'm I'm telling you right now, on a daily basis, I am still fleeing. I am fleeing from trusting in myself. I am fleeing from dropping my anchors in shallow waters. I am fleeing from lashing my heart and soul to things that are here today and gone tomorrow. On a daily basis, I'm severing ties. I'm reminding myself, don't trust that. Don't trust that. I don't trust my own ability to find joy here on earth. I've chased after it, and it's fleeting. And any source of happiness I found by my own strength and pursuit was here today and gone tomorrow. So I'm learning, slowly but surely, to trust that I'll find joy in the things Jesus says I'll find joy in. Faithfulness to my wife. Faithfulness to my family. Walking in sacrificial love. Those things that don't feel good, but Jesus says you'll find joy in. I'm striving day by day to anchor myself to those things. Purpose and meaning. 
I'm every day tempted to find purpose and meaning in my performance, my ability, what people think about me, and every day Jesus is right there. Don't trust that. Don't trust that. They'll applaud you today and they'll be gone tomorrow. Don't trust in that. They'll tell you the things that you want to hear today and they'll talk about you behind your back. Don't trust in that. How about my awesome wife? God says, don't trust in that. Don't find your security and identity in her. Find your security and identity in me. And so I, like Abraham, am fleeing. Those of us who have fled for refuge, we might have what? Strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. The hope that is set where? Before us. Where was Abraham's hope set? On his existence in that moment? The struggle of the day? The fact that his wife was barren and, Abraham, and God told Abraham he was going to have kids? No. He fixated his focus beyond what was happening today on something off in the distance, something that was better. So you and I, too, are to have our hope fixated on what has been set before us, which, by the way, spoiler alert, six chapters later, the author's going to come back and say, you know what that hope is that's set before you? It's Jesus himself. He came, he lived, he died, he resurrected and went back to heaven. Here's our hope. We get to be with him. That's the hope that's set before you. And then, not only that, verse 19, we have this as, what? what's the this? This hope, this strong encouragement. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What beautiful imagery we just got from the word of God. Now think about that. Now, um, most of you are probably familiar with how it, what an anchor looks like. They actually haven't changed a whole lot in the last 4,000 years. Um, so for them, anchors looked a lot like they look today. You've got, a, uh, you've got a, some type of a loop at the top where the rope or the chain latches on. You've got a shank or a shaft that gives way to two arms that come out with points. You guys have seen them, right? Popeye the sailor man had one tattooed on his arm. Coming down the shank, you've got this, what's called a stock. It was another bar that came across that actually turned perpendicular to the arms. And the purpose of the stock was this, that when it hit the bottom of the sea, the stock would hit and cause the anchor to lean one way or the other, causing one of the arms of the other to do what? To dig in. So it didn't just lay there flat on the bottom of the ocean. It would force it to, to do what? To, 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 to lean over and dig in. Why? Because the strength of the anchor is dependent upon what it digs into. It's not the weight of the anchor that holds the boat. It's what the anchor digs into that holds the boat. Now, here's a very true reality. Ships don't have anchors to keep the wind from blowing. Ships have anchors because the wind is going to blow. Right? The purpose of having an anchor on the ship isn't to keep the storm from raging. The point of having an anchor on the ship is because the storms are going to rage and blow against the ship. Right? And so it forces me to think about this beautiful promise that Jesus made in Matthew 7. He's, he's at the Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching his heart out to the people. And towards the end of his sermon, he makes this beautiful promise. So some of you are familiar with this. In Matthew 7, he says... Everyone then who hears these words of mine, and this is the idea of hearing it, embracing it, believing it, who hears these words of mine and does them, believe and obey. What did we learn about Abraham? He believed, therefore he obeyed. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house, what? On the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and the beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. It had been lashed and anchored to something that doesn't move. What is Jesus saying that is? My words, the promises that I'm making to you, that the only things that you can lash your life to that will still be here tomorrow that won't move. And in contrast to that, look what he says in verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, right, doesn't believe them, doesn't walk them out, will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus is describing what happens in life when the best of us lashes our identity and our purpose and our meaning and our joy on things that are shifting like sand. And they feel good today, but they're gone tomorrow. What happens to our life? It comes crumbling down. The author of Hebrews is saying, this is why God makes promises to us. I love the way this chapter ends, verse 19 and 20. So verse 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that, listen to this, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What in the world is he talking about here? Think of it this way. Jesus has made two great journeys on your behalf. The first great journey that Jesus made on your and my behalf was to leave his authority and his glory seated at the right hand of God to come to earth and be born in humility as a baby. And he made this great journey, right, to say, here, I'll go in. Left his deity and his authority and his glory and his majesty, what, to be born as a, as a human, to walk like we walk, to experience what we experience, to know what suffering is and what pain feels like and what tears feel like and what torture is like and what betrayal feels like. And he lived the whole experience, right, this journey he takes on our behalf. To do what? To die on a cross, be buried and resurrect before returning back to where he came. Now, there's some beautiful pictures of this all throughout the Old and New Testament of what Jesus did on this journey. I love Hosea. If you're familiar with this Old Testament book of Hosea, it's this beautiful love story, right? And it's so unorthodox. And God speaks to Hosea and says, hey, I've got a wife for you. Really? Which one? Well, you're going to need to go over to the red light district because right now she's a prostitute. And I want you to go. It's going to be awesome. Just trust me in this. Buy her, right? Bring her back. But don't treat her like a prostitute. Treat her like a wife. And she's going to bear children. And you're going to have a family. But then guess what? She's going to go back. Just know that. She's going to go back. And when she does, I want you to go after her. I want you to make the journey from the good side of town to the red light district to go after the one who's been unfaithful to you. And I want you to purchase her again. This is how God prefaces Jesus coming to earth to say what? I'm sending my best after you. He's leaving glory. He's leaving the authority of his position over the, over the universe to come and be born as a baby. He's coming after you, unfaithful one, to purchase you out of prostitution and unfaithfulness because he loves you and to treat you as a bride, not as a prostitute. And that was the first great journey that Jesus made on our behalf. And now what we're reading here is that Jesus has made a second great journey on our behalf. When he returned to the throne, he entered into the presence of God. And here's what that means for us. 
before Jesus goes to the cross, the presence of God is veiled from people on earth. Veiled. We've talked about this a few weeks ago. Thick curtain. Keeping the people away from the presence of God, the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And now look at what we're reading. Jesus makes another great journey on our behalf, and he enters into the holy presence of God. But here's what's different. He says, you come with me. I'm going in, but you're coming with me. That's what Abraham had lashed his hopes on. That was the anchor that caused him to stay the course. He had his eyes fixated on that promise, a better city, a better existence. And so Jesus has gone on our behalf, and he has entered as a forerunner, having become a high priest forever in the order of Mechizedek. Now, here's where I want to end with this question. How do I anchor my life to Jesus, right? How do I do that? And here's the beautiful thing, especially if you're not familiar with church, because I know we kick out all kinds of weird things. Here's, here's how you lash your heart to Jesus. You ready for it? We read it in Matthew 7. We saw it in Abraham's life. Believe. It is by faith that you lash your heart to Jesus and anchor yourself in him. Now get ready though, okay? Get ready because faith is gonna give way to God's grace in your life in such an overflowing way that it's gonna overwhelm you and it's gonna begin to transform you. God wants you to know that up front. I've got the riches of my mercy ready just to, just to pour out on you. Shackles are gonna be unlocked. Shame is gonna diminish. Guilt is gonna be gone. You're gonna feel loved. You're gonna have purpose. You're gonna have identity that, that is here today and here tomorrow. But just be ready because my grace is gonna work on you. It's gonna transform you day by day into what? The image of my son. The time we're done, you're gonna look like him. And here's what God wants you to know today. That invitation is on the table. By faith that you would believe and trust in Jesus. By lashing your heart to him, who he is and what he has done for you, your, your identity, your joy, your purpose, your eternity will be secured in a way that it doesn't matter what happens tomorrow, right? The storm is coming. It's one phone call away, one doctor report away, one blood test away, one tragedy away, one unfaithful friend away. Tragedy, storms are coming, but today in faith, you can lash your heart to something that will still be here tomorrow that will hold you steady. I'm gonna pray for us now. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I want to invite you to, to pray, to approach God in faith, to lash your heart to Jesus this morning. And so I'm going to invite you to pray with me this morning, if that's you. We're going to bow our heads and close our eyes. In just a minute, we're going to shift and we're going to do um, some baptisms in the service. But right now, let's... Let's focus on what God is saying to us each individually. And if that's you today and you want to trust Jesus for the first time, it begins by acknowledging who he is. So in your own words, if you would maybe talk to him and address him and say, Jesus, I believe you truly are the son of God. And not only that, I believe in what you've done on my behalf, that you've died on the cross for me and you resurrected, giving me hope that goes beyond this life. And so, Jesus, because of that, I trust in you and you alone.
I just want you to know that if you pray those words or your version of those words right now, the God of the universe is anchoring your soul. So I want to encourage you to do something. If you've become a Christian today, that's what it means to become a Christian, to trust Jesus. I want you to share that with somebody, somebody who you came with, somebody who maybe a friend or family member who you know it would mean a lot to them. I'm going to encourage you to, to share that with them today. And for the rest of us who are Christians, yet we acknowledge the ongoing struggle of lashing our lives and hearts to things that are fleeting, that today we would just maybe step back and say, God, show me, show me where I'm still trusting in fleeting things. And as his Holy Spirit brings those things to mind this morning, maybe you would one by one release those things. Father, this morning we're so grateful that you give us security, that you give us something to believe in. We're so thankful, God, that you anchor our lives in the midst of the storm. Father, we find joy in submission. We find joy in turning our lives over to you and trusting in you you alone. Pray now you would work in us as we respond. In Jesus' powerful name.